The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com hol. Hello. Writing about the Scottish-born novelist Margot Livesey, the author Alice Siebold remarked, quote, Every novel of Margot Livesey's is, for her readers, a joyous discovery. Her work radiates with compassion and intelligence and always, deliciously, mystery. How has Margot Livesey managed to do this in novel after novel, including in contemporary classics such as The Flight of Gemma Hardy, The House on Fortune Street, and her most recent work, Mercury? We'll be exploring her readerly passions and writerly inspirations, including Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier, and James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to my podcast. This is a good one. A treat. Sometimes you just, well, you just never know, do you? When you invite a guest onto the program to talk about books. Our guest today, her choices were outstanding. I couldn't wait to dig into these books. And then I read her books, the ones she's written, and I was floored. They're so good. Everyone should run out and buy them. I'd start with The House on Fortune Street, but really, they're all good. And hey, here's a bit of synergy. You can get her latest book, Mercury, as your free book on audible.com simply by heading over to audibletrial.com slash HOL. That's my recommendation for this week. You might be finding yourself in need of some solid literature this week, aren't we all? Aren't we all in need of functioning government, a constitutional democracy, and some literature? Literature to remind you that you are not crazy, and that there is such a thing as rationality and empathy out there. So, I'm Jack Wilson, proud grandson of two immigrants from Switzerland, and the great-grandson of two immigrants from Hungary, and a bit of a hodgepodge for the rest, a lot of immigrants in my family. I'm married to an immigrant, and we'll be speaking with an immigrant today, Margot Livesey. America is a better place for welcoming all these people. That's my view. Okay, Margot Livesey, where do we begin? She's one of those writers who... You read a few pages and you think, oh boy, I'm going to have to read everything she's ever written. It's always great to encounter an author like that. Here's a description of her latest novel, Mercury, to get us started. Quote, a taut emotional thriller about love, obsession, and the secrets that pull a family apart. Donald believes he knows all there is to know about seeing an optician in suburban Boston, he rests assured that he and his wife, Viv, who works at the local stables, will live out quiet lives with their two children. Then Mercury, a gorgeous young racehorse, enters their lives, and everything changes. Viv's friend Hillary has inherited Mercury from her brother after his mysterious death. He was riding Mercury late one afternoon, and the horse returned to the stables alone. When Hillary first brings Mercury to board at the stables, everyone there is struck by his beauty and prowess, particularly Viv. As she rides him, Viv dreams of competing with Mercury, rebuilding the ambitions of grandeur that she held for herself before moving to the suburbs. But her daydreams soon morph into consuming desire, and her infatuation with the thoroughbred quickly escalates to obsession. 
By the time Donald understands the change that has come over Viv, it is too late to stop the impending fate that both their actions have wrought for them and their loved ones. A beautifully crafted, riveting novel about the ways in which relationships can be disrupted and ultimately destroyed by obsession, secrets, and ever-escalating lies. End quote. That's a good ride for a novel. And you know what? Margot Livesey is the perfect companion for it, the perfect guide. Go find Mercury. And after that, you can find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. There are plenty of episodes in our catalog to explore. Here are a couple related to this one, our interview with Charles Baxter, who Margot and I talk about during this show, and our conversation with Shawnee Yang Ryan, where we talk about James Baldwin. So many links in literature. It's all one great, happy conversation. Thanks for all of the feedback from last week's look at Great Literary Cities. Mike will be back soon with a discussion of readability he's been working on. So please subscribe to the podcast. You won't want to miss that episode and all of the other episodes we have coming up. And finally, there's a special bonus at the end of the show today. I'm going to read a short story, a Jack Wilson short story called Parable. Gar, is this, have we done fiction Jack Wilson stories on this no, not yet. This is the first time, I think. We used to read it all the time on the old show. On the new show, I think this is the first. Well, it's only 300 words. 300 words long. Let's see what we can do in 300 words. That will be after the usual show. Just stick around for the extra bonus content. Okay, enough selling fish. Let's get to our conversation with the wonderful novelist, Margot Livesey. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Margot Livesey, author of several award-winning novels, including The House on Fortune Street, The Flight of Gemma Hardy, her most recent novel, Mercury, and several others. She's here today to talk about her life as a reader and some books that she has loved. Margot Livesey, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you so much. I wanted to start with your childhood because, if I'm correct, you grew up in Scotland. Is that right? That is true. I did, yes. And what kind of childhood was it? I've come to realize that it was rather an idiosyncratic or eccentric childhood. My father taught at a boy's private school oh, that right. <laughs> I know it sounds very promising <laughs> um, that had been founded by um, William Gladstone in 1847 and it was way out in the countryside 10 miles from the town of Perth 
So my early my early years were filled with um, sheep and moors and boys in kilts. Right. You know, we didn't have a television till I was nine or ten. We didn't have a telephone till I was about that age. Mm. And in many ways, I, we could have been living in Victorian times, although it was a little bit more comfortable. Right. <laughs> and when did the love for reading begin? Is that is that you uh, out there in the countryside looking for things to do and discovering uh, uh, your parents' library? It, it was partly that. Uh, I didn't immediately fall in love with reading. In fact, initially reading struck me as a, as a ridiculous occupation and one that took me away from much more interesting things like chasing the sheep and <laughs> building forts and climbing trees. Right. But I, and I can still remember the first book I read. It was called Percy the Bad Chick. Percy the Bad Chick. Yes, and it was about this bright yellow chicken who um, <laughs> rose, was initially very badly behaved and then rose to rule the farmyard. And I identified quite strongly with Percy. <laughs> in uh, in ambition or misbehavior or both? <laughs> Mostly in misbehavior. <laughs> but, but I do remember almost very precisely this. I was standing in the corner because I had refused to read. And then suddenly I was looking at the book and I was reading. Oh. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And you felt like the immersion of it, or what appealed to you? I felt that it was a window into another world. Oh. And although I liked the world of my childhood, especially as a small child, I did like the idea that there were other worlds. Right, right. Okay. And so then, uh, if that's where the bug uh, took hold, how old were you around this time? Or are we? Are I you... was probably a five or six. Okay. Probably five, I would guess. Okay. Um, and um, my father had this uh, floor-to-ceiling bookshelf. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, I could read, I mean, I, I was permitted to read anything I could reach. Mm -hmm. So I just worked my way through those <laughs> shelves. And right. then I also had a library card, which I regarded as an extremely precious possession. And did you go through any phases where you were reading uh, any any genre books, science fiction or mysteries, or were you into literary fiction? Or you know, I I don't know if I really distinguished initially between things like Agatha Christie mm. and um, Georgette Hare. She wrote kind of bodice rippers mm -hmm. and um, Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall, say, which I read when I was quite young on various um, thrillers and then books about ponies and riding, you know, Judy wins the Gymkhana. Mm -hmm. um, I think they all just seemed the same initially. Right. I mean, one didn't seem good and the other bad, or if that makes sense. Right, right. No, I remember the same feeling that, uh, you know, you could read uh, Ian Fleming or, or Agatha Christie and, and to... A young early reader, it just feels like yet another novel. Yeah, no, I oh, it, I'm yes, I loved Ian Fleming. Were you one of those children who were also writing books and and had the uh, desire to be a, a novelist yourself? I wrote stories which I enjoyed doing, mm -hmm. and um, I think would probably read to the family dog, who was the only only person in, in range who seemed remotely interested. But I, I had quite a lot of other ambitions. I wanted to be a nun because I'd read a wonderful book called The Nun's Story. Mm. And although I wasn't Catholic, uh, it just struck me as very exciting. She went to Africa and helped people. And right. I, loved, I loved all that. And then I read a book about uh, a vet, a veterinarian. And um, thought, oh, that would be that would be fun to help animals. And then I read a biography of Marie Curie and wanted to discover a new element. And so I was I was really very slow to realize that I didn't want to be the person between the covers of a book 
book. I wanted to be the person behind the covers of a book. Right, right. Well, you know, that's interesting, and it kind of leads me into something I wanted to ask you about, which is I was reading your book, The House on Fortune Street, and I noticed how often the characters would look at the example of a writer's life and their biography. And it seems like you had a taste for biography at an early age, looking at scientists and uh, other examples. But by the time uh, the characters in the House on Fortune Street come about, they're really focused on writers. I didn't notice many other examples of biographies that they were looking at. Was that something that you decided to do consciously for your characters, to, to have them look at writers as examples and compare themselves with similar decisions that writers were facing? I like very much that you're asking me this question because I don't often get to to talk about how I came to make The House on Fortune Street. And originally, I wrote a novella, and the central character, the protagonist, was writing his PhD on Keats. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in the course of working on that, I began to read Keats's wonderful letters, which yeah. I, I just thought were so vivid and so passionate and interesting. His living voice is, is in them. And so I kept trying to smuggle bits of Keats into what I was writing. And the novella never really worked, but it stayed with me. And I thought, after several years, I thought, oh, the way to finish the novella is to make it part of a novel, to make it one part of a novel and have other parts of the novel told from the point of view of other characters. Mm-hmm. And then... I really liked the idea that the other characters should also have what I thought of as literary godparents wandering through their pages. Yeah, and one of them is Lewis Carroll. Yes, and uh, his uh, fascinating relationship with Alice Liddell and with photography and particularly with photographing young girls. Right, and in fact, one of the characters, uh, Abigail, says everyone has a book or a writer who's the key to their life. So you've chosen three books for us today for us to look at, and so I thought we could examine those and see if any of those might unlock some of your secrets. <laughs> or the secrets I, I'm prepared to admit to having, <laughs> whatever those are. <laughs> well, one of them was actually no surprise to me, and now that I've heard you describe your childhood, it almost seems like you had a a Bronte-like uh, childhood. You chose Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and it seems like there's a lot of parallels with your father uh, running a school and and you being out there in the countryside. And was that how old were you when you encountered uh, Jane Eyre? I read Jane Eyre, which was on my father's bookshelves at a at a good height, uh, when I was nine, mm-hmm. a year younger than Jane. Oh, right. And I immediately passionately identified with her. The the boys' school, my father didn't actually run it. He was a teacher. It was a, a, a gothic sort of building with battlements and ivy and attics and yeah. all those things. And then, of course, I, we had the, the Scottish moors nearby. Right. And, and I also had a very difficult stepmother who seemed a good... Um, it seemed very comparable to Jane's stern aunt. So right. um, in lots of ways, she struck me as a kindred spirit. Right. And did you see that, I mean, Jane has quite a, a difficult time at the school. Did you see the, the school as kind of a, a nightmare version of the school that you were seeing in your life? Or was, was the school that you saw, could you identify with Jane's experience of the school? Boys' school where I was living seemed a quite civilized place, but the year after I read Jane Eyre, I was sent to this terrible girls' school oh. that um, I did, I mean, it wasn't, I'd have to say, nearly as bad as Lowood School. Right, right. But in terms of my level of, of suffering and despair and um, difficulty, it struck me as very comparable to Lowood School. Right. And so did Jane Eyre, is that one that you would return to? It seems so close to a lot of the things that you experienced. Did you view it as a continuous presence in your 
adolescence? I think, it, I mean, it's a book that I would say at this point I've either read so often or thought about so much that certain scenes in Jane Eyre are much more real to me than things I've experienced in my own life. Right. And I remember them much more clearly. And I think there's something about the story of the orphan that is very compelling. We have lots of wonderful literary orphans and, um, you know, Jane Eyre and um, Pip in Great Expectations. Mm -hmm. Of course, Harry Potter more recently. Um, and a, a surprising number of children's books when you, when you look at them, or at least the ones I read as a child, have orphans like Anne of Green Gables and Heidi, I think, is an orphan. And mm. so I think there's, there's something about we all have an inner orphan, maybe. Right. <laughs> that I responded to very strongly in the narrative. And Jane is a, is a heroic figure. I mean, she goes on this big journey and she overcomes huge difficulties and finally gets her heart's desire. So it's, it's also a very romantic and satisfying story. Right. I think the orphan piece is a way of making children and, and grownups too think of the young person as being as being heroic. I mean, if the parents are around, then that's someone to guide you and, and someone to follow and maybe someone to take direction from. But once they subtract out the parents, it can make the child grow up very quickly and need to be on their own and, and show some of that that pluck or that guile. That, that, no, that's very astute of you. I do think that the absence of parents is is crucial to, to seeing the, the orphan as heroic and a little bit larger than life. Now, I think when I first read Jane Eyre, I was probably, I was probably in my early 20s. Mm. And I found, uh, I mean, I, I don't think we're spoiling this for anyone, but the, the description of of the madwoman, Rochester's wife, I just found incredibly uh, suspenseful and and terrifying. I, I can't imagine reading that at age nine. Was it something that you found uh, powerful? And it seems like it would give you nightmares. You know, I did. I did find that extremely frightening and and um, and scary. Yes, no, it, and I I suppose it also has that kind of almost exaggerated fairy tale element mm. that it's a fear that you can almost enjoy right. even while it even while it's very frightening yeah yeah it's sort of delicious i mean i think of yeah. it i know there's been a lot of controversy about the depiction of the mad woman and i almost view it as kind of like a guilty pleasure it's so riveting but i know that it's it's probably wrong of me not to be viewing it with more of a critical eye but i just get swept away by it yeah, no, and I think it has that kind of heightened quality. I mean, Bertha seems seems larger than life. I mean, she's a big portrayed as a big woman and very strong and um, full of rage, as well as sometimes moments of tenderness. So it's it's very compelling. I pulled out a quote here where Jane sees her, and it's uh, in the deep shade at the farther end of the room. A figure ran backwards and forwards. What it was, whether beast or human being, one could not at first sight tell. It groveled, seemingly on all fours. It snatched and growled like some strange wild animal, but it was covered with clothing and a quantity of dark grizzled hair, wild as a mane, hid its head and face. Gives me chills, even now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. So when you read Jane Eyre, did you read it as an assigned book, or did you come to it for pleasure? No, so I went through this... I kind of came out of college, so I grew up in one place. Um, I lived in the in the same room in the same house for eighteen years, and my my father was afraid of flying, so I had never been on a plane. and And then I went off to college, and was hit by this travel bug. And I I went to Italy for a year, and I I did a lot of you know traveled through a lot of different countries. And then after college, I went to Taiwan uh, mm -hmm. to spend a year. And when I was there, I was kind of all alone. I went there with a, a cousin was living there, but I spent hours and hours of 
just uh, teaching English and then retiring to my apartment and just alone in bed with my books. And Mm -hmm. I remember a radio station there. There was an English radio station that was playing every morning. They would play a dramatization of Jane Eyre that they were running through and they would advertise it all day. So as I was sort of reading other things, I would be hearing these snippets of Jane Eyre until finally I got so, so caught up in the book that I had to run out and buy it uh, so that I could just read it. That is quite wonderful, Jane Eyre in Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but it, it was not difficult to be transported to the world of Jane Eyre, uh, even there, you know, in the among the all the Chinese signs and, you know, reading it in tea houses or wherever I was finding to read it. It is a, a book to really be pulled in, I think, by the, by the setting, but also just the narration. I think that was... Yeah what Charlotte Bronte was given a lot of credit for kind of pioneering is the way that it, she creates the, the consciousness of Jane is so compelling. Yeah, no, you really feel her passions, her emotions, her fears, her desires in a very deep way. Now, I had a question for you that I'm going to change a little bit based on something you've, you've already told us about, uh, and that is about your novel, The Flight of Gemma Hardy which has been described as a a captivating homage to Jane Eyre. I was assuming that it was because you loved the novel Jane Eyre and so you wanted to follow the pattern of it or or pay tribute to it in some way. But now I'm wondering if it was actually you were writing something, you know, an idea that maybe came out of your own life and it just happened to have these parallels to Jane Eyre. Was it a conscious decision to pay homage to Jane Eyre or was it something that was you were interested in writing about that had a lot of overlap with the story of Jane Eyre. I, I think I'd have to confess that it was very much the former. I, mm-hmm. you know, lo- loved Jane Eyre for a long time, but I had never planned to write a homage of of that or of any novel. Indeed, it struck me as a very risky business to right. write in the shadow of a masterpiece. Sure. Yeah. But um, one day in Boston, I was invited to visit a book club to lead a discussion of Jane Eyre and I found the room filled with readers and we had this wonderful uh, enlarging discussion of the novel and I was really struck by the fact that all these people were Americans, many of them had never visited Britain, Um, many of them didn't have we didn't have the kind of reasons I did to identify with Jane. Right, right. Um, they didn't have a gothic boys' school or a difficult stepmother. or, <laughs> um, But they all did identify with Jane, and I was just very struck by Bronte's accomplishment and the uh, immense skill with which she tells Jane's story. And I found myself driving home from the book club and thinking, Maybe, maybe I should try to try to write a reimagining of Jane Eyre. Maybe I could use my own childhood and somehow mm. bring it together with a, a sort of retelling of of Jane's story. You, you know, the orphan who's forced into the world and forced to leave home. And right. although I thought it was a, a terrible idea in one sense, I also found it completely captivating and. A few weeks later, I started to write The Flight of Gemma Hardy. Oh, that's so interesting. It wasn't just the plot structure or thinking that you wanted to reimagine the characters and, and give them a modern twist, but it was really the success of Jane Eyre and, and the way that it was as compelling as it was. I, I think it was, yes. I mean, the, I don't mean success in a kind of, um, I, I don't know, a vulgar way exactly, but right. the, Bronte's success in drawing readers in and making making the story so so vivid, mm-hmm. uh, and I really loved the the structure of the novel, the five very distinct locations, each of which has its own atmosphere and its own psychological arc, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a wonderful structure for a novel. And the just the amazing surprise or the the way that it unfolds for Jane and the the secret of Rochester. Yes. 
I know I found all of that deeply satisfying. And then, of course, writing, trying to write my homage, I immediately realized that I would have to be very clear with the reader that I was, on the one hand, paying homage to Jane Eyre, but on the other hand, was writing my own novel. So one of the first rules I made was that there were going to be no attics <laughs> anywhere in my novel. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. That seems like a, a wise rule to put in place. Yes. And maybe many more novels would benefit from the no attics rule. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for the surprise bonus question? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. After one of your book readings, you go out for drinks. One thing leads to another. The night gets long and strange. And somehow you find yourself at a party full of 19th century authors. With serious eyes and the faintest signs of a grin, Edgar Allan Poe escorts you to a corner and says, Ms. Livesey, I'd like you to meet Ms. Charlotte Bronte. You stammer that you're a novelist and that you based one of your books on Jane Eyre. Ms. Bronte nods and says, Oh yes, I'm very familiar with that book. What do you think she says next? Does she approve or disapprove? What a fantastic question. I'm so glad Edgar Allan Poe was my escort. <laughs> he, seemed, think, he seemed devious enough that he'd want to yes, see yes, what would happen. completely suited to the role. <laughs> I think um, Charlotte might be modestly uh, pleased. Pleased, mm. might be in a, pleased might be too a stretch, but at least modestly accepting. Mm -hmm. I mean... I think the idea of homage, I mean, you know, for a long time, so much literature was not telling, but retelling, you know, most of, most of Shakespeare, um, a lot of fairy tales and folklore and mythology, um, was, was a retelling, not a telling. And right. so I think she would have been familiar with, with that and actually thought it quite acceptable while perhaps being startled that her book was the source of the retelling. Right, 150 years later. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's any author you would think would be, uh, would be quite pleased to think that they created something that had such, a, such good bones that it uh, could be repurposed that much in the future. Yes, I, I, I certainly hope so. And then perhaps we would have gone on to discuss something sort of something altogether different that um, she felt like like talking about um, mm. perhaps um, uh, something about fashion or whether to get a new cloak or <laughs> um, <laughs> the sermon she'd heard last Sunday. <laughs> Right, or the relationships of the other people in the room. Yes. Yeah. We might have gossiped about Edgar. <laughs> okay, let's look at the next book, which uh, moves us forward in time, another uh, half century or so. Uh, and this is The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. Uh, and I think most people will be familiar with it, most listeners to the podcast. Um, and I, it's... It's kind of on a lot of lists of underappreciated classics. I think of people think of it as a a book that that true lovers of literature like, or that writers like. Or what is it that drew you to the Good Soldier? I read the Good Soldier the year after I left university, where I had studied literature and philosophy. But this was at the University of York in England. But The Good Soldier had never appeared on any of my reading lists. I, mm -hmm. I knew who Ford Maddox Ford was, mostly by his association with people like you know, Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence, right. rather than as a writer in his own, in his own right. And I was, I was just bowled over when I read it. I thought, I, I, I thought the, 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 the way in which the story was told was almost as important as the story itself. Right. It feels very it, modern that way. Yeah, it feels so modern. I mean, with Jane Eyre, the story 
begins at the beginning and it moves steadily forward. Right, right. Um, and, you know, you're on a journey and you, 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 you stay on that journey with really almost no digressions. And the good soldier, the way John Dowell, the narrator, spirals round the material and you think you understand something and then suddenly you realize you've completely misunderstood whatever it was you thought you understood and then it comes around again. I, I was really captivated by that. Right, and you start to wonder where he is in this and if he's wrestling with the truth or if he's withholding the truth or where exactly, how exactly we're supposed to feel about him. Yes, I mean, it's almost impossible, I think, to to pin him down. And he's both unreli- both an unreliable narrator, but also, in many ways, a very reluctant narrator. You feel he constantly doesn't want to tell the story that he's telling. Right. The opening line is, this is the, st- the saddest story I have ever heard. And you feel like he's either dealing with the tragedy and he's dealing with his own role in the tragedy. And the style of writing and the style of the narration matches uh, his position with respect to the the main story. Yes, and his role in being almost um, determinedly obtuse mm, <laughs> is, right. of, is, of course, an amazing part of the novel and part of what makes it work, that he seems to believe almost till the very end that Florence is the devoted wife she claims to be, has a weak heart, is is this incredibly pure woman. Um, it's fascinating. Right. I have a great story about this, and it involves our, our mutual friend, uh, Charles Baxter. So I'll go ahead and tell it. I haven't. Oh, do, I, yes, I'd love to hear this. So basically, I was a student, and I was in a course being co-taught by Charlie and, and another professor. And the professor, the other professor had read a passage from Ford Maddox Ford's memoirs. And it's that passage, it's, it's kind of famous, where he's talking about when he discovered D.H. Lawrence. And he said, uh, you know, he, he just read a paragraph of a story that came in from this unknown writer, And he basically tossed it aside and and went upstairs and his secretary said, oh, you found another, found another, you know, good writer. And he said, yes, a genius this time. And he, he talked about how he knew all that just from one paragraph and just seeing the way that Lawrence was able to describe, I think it was a train scene or something. And so the professor read the paragraph and read the passage and then said to the class, does anyone know who he was talking about? And it just so happened that I had read that a few weeks before, and so I knew the answer. I knew that it was D.H. Lawrence. And I was kind of pleased, you know, here I was in class with all of these intelligent people, and I just lucked out and happened to know the answer to this question. And then, meanwhile, Charlie was sitting kind of in the corner, and he was very quiet. Somebody asked him what he was thinking about, and he said, I was just thinking how interesting that passage is when Ford Maddox Ford's greatest novel is about not knowing. And it just kind of spoke to me about how, as an editor or as a critic, uh, which Ford Maddox Ford was, was great at both of those things, you, you know, it's, it's about confidence and it's about knowledge and certainty and recognition and, you know, his ability to really see literature for what it is. But then when he put on his hat as, a, as an author, as a novelist, he's adopting this position of the unknowable or the, the uncertainty of it. To me, it just kind of crystallized what was so great about fiction and, and great about novelists and, and novel writing is their willingness to deal with that uncertainty and to express that uncertainty rather than uh, have a kind of of polemical attitude toward the truth. That, no, that I can just picture, you're describing it so vividly, I can picture this whole scene and I can picture Charlie making this <laughs> incredibly pointed observation very, very simply and yes. unassumingly. Exactly. <laughs> With sort of the, the one sentence that... Uh, 
changed the whole trajectory of, of the 90-minute class. Yes. Uh, and, of course, I mean, it, that, I mean, it's one of the things that I think both readers and writers are persistently interested in is the connection between the author's life and and the novels and the way they they shape their fiction. Right. Charlotte Bronte, you know, having this very passionate, unrequited relationship with the uh, tutor she studied with when she went to Belgium, uh, the married tutor, and... Um, you know, writing about that first very unsuccessfully in a novel called The Professor and then turning it around in, in, in Jane Eyre and finally giving her heroine all the things that she couldn't, that she herself, Charlotte, couldn't get. And I see a lot of parallels between The Good Soldier and The House on Fortune Street and the way that you used multiple narrations and um, not that there's multiple narration in, in The Good Soldier, but it seems like your narrative technique and the the shifts in chronology are similar in the way that the story unfolds for the reader almost beyond where the narration is that there's this this other story that we're gaining access to but we're only gaining access to it not directly but through pieces or fragments i'm really happy that you say that because i, I mean if i if if I was a tenth of the writer of Ford Maddox Ford, I would love to, you know, <laughs> have tried to do what he did in The Good Soldier, but not being able to make that work. The House on Fortune Street was my attempt to construct a narrative where the reader would feel very sure that she knew what was happening, that she understood the character, that she knew who had behaved badly and who had behaved well. And then subsequently that view would be overturned or called into question. Right. Um, By by each of the four, there are sort of, just for people who might not be familiar with it, there are four distinct uh, voices or or protagonists, I guess, four sections in the novel, and they're all sort of peeling back a new layer of this mystery of what actually happened. Yes, and one of the things that interested me was how, I think for many people over a certain age, this this does happen to us in our in our own lives over mm-hmm. over time you know mm-hmm. that we we hear one version of a story and then later we hear a slightly different version or some new fact shows up that that changes things oh that's so true that's so, that is so true and you find out something about your parents or or your parents friends or your grandparents or uh just old friends and things that you never would have guessed at the time, and it completely affects how you view them and, and how you view your own past retrospectively. Yes, mm. and it, it's, a, it's an unnerving and fascinating feeling when the ground shifts under our feet. Right. And were you drawn to that because it was a way to generate literary suspense and to to keep people turning the pages to find out what happened? Or was it an interest in the kind of issues we've been talking about, that this is sort of how life works? I, I think I think a combination of the two. At the boys' school where I was growing up, uh, there, were, there was a couple um, who had adopted a son, and at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was just pleased there was another child to play with. And then subsequently, I heard why they had adopted a son at that time. And then many years after that, I heard an additional facts about this adoption and what had propelled it. And mm. we kept changing over time. And I really wanted to to capture that effect, and right. the structure of the house on Fortune Street seemed a way to do that. And I also loved the idea of making the reader into a kind of detective, if you will, who, mm-hmm. would, who would put things together and have a sense of figuring out the story. Right, 
Right. Well, it's very effective. That was my, that was completely my experience as I was reading it. And it, you know, I, I found it to be as, as compelling as a whodunit without having to put a, a man in a Sherlock Holmes hat on the first page and trying to investigate a, a corpse that's on the floor or something. But it was, it was as gripping as, as an Agatha Christie book. I cannot think of a higher compliment. Thank you. <laughs> that's, the, um, that's the dream of every literary novelist, right? Yes. To, to feel like they've written a page turner that uh, that gets at at serious themes and and wonderful characters, but that does so in a way that it doesn't feel like taking medicine. Yeah, and I think it, I think a, another thing, if I can just take a moment, that propelled the house on Fortune Street was these two different versions, if you will, of, of psychology, um, you know, one version in which we have a great deal of free will and can reinvent ourselves. Mm. And, you know, if we can just get through our difficult childhoods, we can, we can become the adults we want to be and, and put down all that baggage. Right. And, and, and then this other psychological model in which it's, surprisingly hard to put down that baggage and I was really interested in exploring both of those ideas in for my characters right it's a goal that might not be ever attainable unfortunately right and you see writers who are wrestling with something similar yes yes very much okay are you ready for the surprise bonus question I'm braced <laughs> okay one rainy night, a cranky Ford Maddox Ford rings your doorbell. Inviting himself in, he sits by the fire and starts grumbling about the state of literature today. In my day, he says, we had two strands of novels. Realistic fiction was being perfected by 19th century titans. And modernist fiction was exploring what the novel can do through great innovation. I just don't see anything from the last 50 years that can stand with Flaubert or James or Conrad or Joyce or Wolf. You have two choices. One is to agree with him and offer some reasons for why novelists aren't comparable to the heavyweights in the past. The second option is to suggest an author that he should explore to see how recent novels can be just as good as those in the past, as artistic, ambitious, and accomplished. Gosh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is challenging, and I can just see Ford Braddock's Ford putting the question really quite grumpily. He would. Well, I do think it's interesting that um, nowadays you can talk to quite a lot of young writers, and if you ask them something about what their aesthetic ambitions are, mm -hmm. they often won't be able to give you a very clear answer. Mm. They're a little bit hazy about modernism. Um, they sort of know what realism is, and then they know what magic realism is. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is, and then there's there's futuristic novels of various kinds. Right. Um, but do you think that we've exhausted the different ways to play with form? Is there a feeling that all of the Innovation has been tried, and there's already examples of it in the past. There's nothing new, no new ground to break. I don't think that. I, I think that people are experimenting, I mean, but in different ways. I mm. mean, I, the great William Trevor died last mm. year, wonderful story writer and, or story writer and novelist. And one of the things he said uh, about his work was that he, thought of all his work as experimental, but the experiments were hidden, which I love. And I do think there are people conducting experiments in all kinds of ways. I mean, I would say, for instance, that Alice Munro is a quite experimental writer mm -hmm. and a very uh, shameless, um, very fearless writer. Right. But I don't know if you know, I mean, I could if I could sit someone down and make my case, but I, I don't know if everybody would instinctively agree with me. Right. It's not the innovation. It's not as apparent on the page as it would be if someone is handed a copy of Finnegan's Wake. Exactly. Right. And 
I mean, I do think that um, in terms of, you know, stream of consciousness, we probably cannot go much further. But I do think if the standard, if the aesthetic we're pursuing is something closer to what Virginia Woolf advocates in um, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, when she talks about how everything is constantly being made new and reinvented, uh, relations between parents and children, between politicians and subjects, between uh, you know, industrialists and workers, etc. Um, and how it's the job of the novelist to capture this, these new emotions, these new relationships. If we think in terms like that, then I think there is a good deal of innovation going on and a great deal of room for innovation Mm. because things are changing and so quickly and so we can see in a novel like perhaps not the best example but cloud atlas Mm. Mm -hmm. an attempt to get at something that's going on in a very different kind of way than anything that would have passed across ford maddox ford's desk when he was editing his various literary reviews Right. I think that I think that's a good choice. I also think Ford Maddox Ford was so was so shrewd and such a such a good reader himself that he would have also seen William Trevor and Alice Munro and would have felt like you had proven him wrong. Oh good. <laughs> and then we'd have had a drink together and a very nice chat. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned William Trevor because I have to say, when I was reading your books, he was the first person who came to mind. Yeah, he's a huge figure in my in my life. I, the tone of his work and yes. oh, the unexpected dark twists. That's exactly. I was going to say there were two things I put my finger on, and you've basically just named them. The first was the style of your prose. I always feel like when I'm reading William Trevor, I read about two sentences and I think okay, he can take me wherever he wants to go. Like, yeah. I'm I'm completely going to ride along just based on the tone and the, and the style of these sentences. And then the second thing is that there are those sort of, those hints of mysteries and the darkness and the, the, the sharpnesses that, uh, that constantly come up and, and kind of keep you at the edge of your seat. Yes. I mean, you just never quite know where you where you where you are in a Trevor story, or right. or where you're going to be next. Right, right. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that he was an influence. Otherwise, I I would have felt like I was imagining something. Uh, no, you're uh, properly um, picturing my hero worship. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I should say that I have uh, kind of developed a theory based on the books you've chosen based on the first two, and I'm not exactly sure how the third one fits in. So let's explore that. Uh, The third one you chose was uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. This is from 1956, so we move forward another half century or so. What drew you to Giovanni's Room? I have to confess that when I first read it, I was not immediately captivated. I read it, I had to spent some time in Paris as an au pair and I'd Mm. been living Mm -hmm. in a maid's room like Giovanni and the narrator David and I was interested in reading novels about Paris but reading Giovanni's room was not the novel about Paris I wanted to be reading it was um, (laughs) in many ways so sad and so dark Mm. and so Mm -hmm. confusing yeah, he, it's all told on the worst night of his life, basically. Yes. Yeah. And um, and so you know, I read it and I thought, okay, um, that that was really interesting, and um, and then I moved on. But in my late twenties, I came back to it, and I thought this is an astonishing, an astonishing novel. And the, I think what really captivated me was the degree to which. Baldwin is able to get on the page what it is like to experience irrevocably deeply conflicted emotions Mm. Mm -hmm. and what it is like to experience uh, uh, situations to which there is no solution and no right thing to do and 
I just found I just found it really marvelous and amazing, and I reread it recently to teach, and I find the writing sometimes rather uneven. I mean, I'm not immediately swept up, but then after a certain number of pages, I realize I've sort of fallen through a trap door or something. I'm in the world of the novel and in in the world of David's sensibility and imagination. Mm-hmm. Baldwin, he he seems to be particularly admired by writers who admire how he's able to push that envelope of emotion and anger and outrage and things that are maybe sometimes hard to convey without without tipping into something where a little bit out of control. Yes, and it's it's interesting thinking about how passion is recorded in each of these novels because. I would say that Bain Eyre is a very passionate novel, but there's really no sex in it. I, I mean, and I think one, that's one reason children can enjoy Jane Eyre is because we, children know all about passion. Right. And so they can enter into Jane's feelings. And then in The, the Good Soldier, I, I mean, we know that sex is going on, but it's, it, it's in many ways deeply hidden from us. Mm-hmm that the characters find each other attractive and what we mostly get are other kinds of passion. Right. And then in Giovanni's room, Baldwin somehow does manage to write about sex, but in in a way, it's always part of this complicated emotional web. Right. And it, it doesn't provide the clarity that David is constantly hoping it will provide. Right. It would be one thing to say that Baldwin was was way ahead of his time, but I, I think he's still ahead of our time in some ways. He's just, he's so bold and, and brave and so capable. I was rereading uh, the novel yesterday and thinking, this is, I mean, this could stand today. Yeah, and I think it would still strike people as actually an astonishingly modern novel. Right. Where, I mean, I know nowadays that many readers might say, oh, oh but it's not a big deal to be to be gay or it's very easy to live a, a gay lifestyle. But I think that when David thinks about how his how he's the, his father's only only child and he's all his father has and right. he doesn't want to go into that room. He doesn't want to live the life of Jacques and Guillaume and these old queens. Right, right. Although the old queens turn out to be like all of fifty-five, I noticed. Right, <laughs> right. I could just, I could just sort of imagine, you know, now that same-sex marriage is widely legal and accepted, that someone might think that Baldwin wouldn't have anything to write about now. And I think Baldwin would probably respond to that and say that he, it would only give him all the more to write about. That it's really about human relationships and the human condition underneath the relationships not just the the political taboo or the or the forbidden aspects of it yes and i think that you know that is linked to his his very specific choice to make his narrator white that you know he was aware that he's writing about you know such explosive subject matter that he he couldn't also bring in race and even his publisher had advised him to burn the book. Yes, <laughs> in an incredibly supportive way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also struck how the novel has, I don't know if you found this rereading it, but it has a very natural feeling. It it, it doesn't feel um, like an artful book, and yet, of right. course, that is the artfulness of it, that, that naturalness, as compared to the good soldier where the narration is constantly being shaped by art and mm-hmm. we're very aware of that mm-hmm. right it almost feels like uh, just a really good storyteller pouring out his his tale yes with, with this terrible immediacy and and I, I mean i don't think the framing device is one of the great i mean i don't think it's the easiest way to tell a story to have a frame, but in this case, I think it works fantastically well mm-hmm. to set the whole story on this particular night. Ah, oh, boy, three good choices. They they sent me back to all three of the books, and now I've I'm, I've got them on my nightstand. 
Oh, good. Well, me too. So I did have one more surprise bonus question, but I think we kind of ran over it. So I'm going to try something else. Okay. I have a theory about Scotland that I want to try out on you. Scotland and literature. Okay, I'm psyched. So Scotland has made a couple of appearances on the History of Literature podcast. And one is that we have an episode that's uh, it hasn't been released yet, uh, but it's going to come out just before this one. Uh, we looked at great literary cities, and I chose Edinburgh as the most literary city in the world. What a great compliment. Yeah. The second uh, appearance that Scotland made is we did an episode on bad poetry. And Scotland, Scottish poets figured very prominently in our list of the worst poets of all time. And so, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little less thrilled by that. I mean, tomorrow is Burns Night, you know. Right. <laughs> well, here's my theory. Okay. So... My theory is that the people of Scotland love literature and the act of writing, that they really revere and, and kind of treasure their writers and, and that there's just this widespread appreciation for it, which you see in, in places like Edinburgh where the writing and writers and tributes to writers and everything just suffuses the, the city. They have a, uh, I think it's called Carry a Poem Day or something where everyone carries a poem around in their pocket and it just has all of these great connections to literature. And I was wondering if the Scottish people also have a streak of, of independence and of not, of not being afraid to fail and a kind of defiance in the wake of criticism. And so it's this love of literature and this fearlessness about continuing that produces both great writers and who are you know unencumbered by the fear of failure but it also leads to these poets who continue even in spite of, you know, lack of talent or... <laughs> who fail to recognize failure. <laughs> who fail to recognize failure, but who nevertheless, you know, continue because their their love for literature is that great and they're, you know, they're determined that this is a worthy calling, even if, you know, people are are uh, asking them to stop or or right. laughing Begging at them behind them their stop. back. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think I'm onto something there? I, you know, I've never thought about it in quite those uh, those terms, but I do think that the idea of um I suppose a number of things. I mean, the idea of not being afraid of failure or of going or maybe it doesn't matter whether you're afraid of failure or not. You just go on anyway. You persist. Mm-hmm. You, you endure. I do think that is is a very Scottish idea. Mm-hmm. And a great and, a, a great character trait for a writer who's who's yes. forced to deal with the potential for failure every day, every time they face the blank page. Yes, I'm. <laughs> I wish I, you, the, the, perhaps we didn't need to enunciate that quite so clearly, but yes, yes. Um, and now and, you can return to your writing desk, fully inspired by your conversation with me, and and go ahead and produce another masterpiece. Thank you. That's just what I plan to do tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for joining me today for this conversation about uh, these three great authors and about your own background as a reader. I found it extremely illuminating and very enjoyable, and thanks for joining us on the History of Literature podcast. Well, thank you, Jack, and I trust that you and all your listeners will immediately be running to read Percy the Bad Chick. (laughs) We may see a spike in Amazon's... uh, in the rankings when, once this uh, okay. uh, podcast is... <laughs> and al- along with several other of the works that we've mentioned, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. There we go. Wasn't that great? So intelligent and so much fun. I'll be adding Margot and her childhood to my list of things I think about whenever someone brings up Jane Eyre. Remember to like us on iTunes and Facebook and to send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, Wilson Author 
at gmail.com. Or you can sign up for our Twitter account at WriterJack. That's Writer, J-A-C-K-E. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas and requests. My thanks to our guest, Margot Livesey, whose latest book, Mercury, can be found at bookstores near you or in a complimentary audiobook version by our sponsor. Simply visit audibletrial.com slash H-O-L to start listening. I'm Jack Wilson. The short story parable is up right after this. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Jack Wilson. When I was a younger man, my grandfather told me a story. A long time ago, in a village not far from here, a merchant went to visit a lawyer. My former partner cheated me, the merchant said. I want to sue him. The lawyer held up his hand. Don't say another word, he said. Your partner was just here, and he hired me to sue you. But don't worry. There's another lawyer who works on the other side of town. The lawyer wrote a note on a piece of paper, folded it, and handed it to the merchant. He'll take care of you. Just give him this when you get there. The merchant started the journey across town. Halfway there, he decided to read the note. Two fat geese, it said. You pluck one, and I'll pluck the other. Years after I heard this story, a powerful man hired me to manage his legal affairs. One night at a restaurant, we noticed another wealthy man seated on the other side of the room. Two billionaires, fifty feet apart. That man is my mortal enemy, my employer said. It doesn't matter what I do, business, politics, he's always there, always taking up the other side, always fighting me. He scribbled something in his journal, tore out the page, and handed it to me. Go give him this and tell him it's from me. As I was crossing the room, I stole a glance at the note. 320 million geese in this country, it said. If we can turn them against each other, we'll pluck them all. (laughs) 